It's the Quotidian. It's episode 25 with Ethan Kobayashi here. Welcome back to the Quotidian Podcast. I'm Bradley Dennis. This week I'm speaking with the theater performer, director, and teacher, Ethan Kobayashi Hyu. Ethan is the creator of Tiamat, which stands for the Integrative Approach and Methodology of Active Transformation. Put more simply, Ethan's work uses theater as the means for a practitioner to create an embodied, multi-perspectival awareness of themselves as applies to a robust search for meaning and purpose. I first encountered his work through the podcast of cognitive scientist and professor John Verveke and immediately saw parallels to my own theories about theater as a pathway toward individuation, which is Carl Jung's term for the process of intense self-discovery and meaning-making. Both Ethan and John's work have proven inspirational to me, and I reached out to Ethan to begin a conversation. This led to our recording, What You're About to Hear, which lasted nearly two hours, so I'm going to break the episode up into two pieces for ease of digestion. But we really get into the nuts and bolts of his work and how theater in particular is uniquely suited as an ecology of practice and an immediacy of effect in people's lives. Ethan also explores deeper aspects of his work as relates to Verveke's theories of meaning-making. The Quotidian is produced by carolinacommons.org and is dedicated to exploring and celebrating the creative energy of the human spirit. For more information, you can visit the website, and if you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash The Quotidian. I'm absolutely thrilled to have had this conversation, and I look forward to many more. And if you like what you're seeing and hearing, please do let us know. You can also check us out on our YouTube page. But most of all, thanks for being here. And please enjoy this dialogue with the hyper-intelligent, ebullient, an effervescent Ethan Kobayashi Hsieh. So to begin with, I want to welcome you, Ethan, to the Quotidian. Great to have you here. Good to see you again. Glad to be here. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for having me, brother. Yeah. Before we kind of dive into stuff, I just want to check in with you and See how you're how you're doing, how this moment finds you. Yeah. Um, well, it's about like 10 30 p.m. at the moment. So I'm kind of winding down at the end of the day. Um, yeah, it's been a really hectic week, a lot of really exciting stuff, uh, deep conversations that I've had to have with myself and with other people mm-hmm. over the past 14 or so days. So mentally I kind of feel like 
I'm, I'm, I'm at the peak. I'm like around like 80% optimal. And that's been that way for like way longer than I usually expect it to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. And emotionally, I feel kind of like settled, actually. I feel quite comfortable with you. And so I'm looking forward really to like getting into the meat of this stuff, especially because I just, you know, was listening to the last conversation that we had had um, privately and off camera, you know, and wow, the, I really, really miss the kind of like bounce back and forth that we have. So excited to be here. Thanks, brother. Wonderful. That's great. So to begin with, I'll, you know, I'll do a little intro blurb about the conversation that we're going to having a little bit of background mm -hmm. about you, but I'm curious just personally as a performer, a bit of your background and how you came to know yourself as a performer and, and how mm -hmm. that evolved for you. Yeah. Uh, against my will feels like the best <laughs> way to say it. Um, yeah. I grew up in a very domestically abusive household. Um, and so something was really interesting, which I think set me on this kind of path of figuring out how acting works like in the mind is um, while I was being like sort of beat on by my mom, she had a tendency to kind of like point and say like, oh, look, you know, he's faking it. Right. Like I'll be a five-year-old kid crying in a corner and it's like, mm. oh, you know, it's fake. And so, you know, five-year-old me doesn't know what the hell is going on. So I kind of go, really? Am I? Right. And so as a kid, we do that physiological side thing of like, <laughs> and I can actually stop kind of what I'm doing. Mm. And then she looks at that and then she goes, oh, you see, he can stop it at will. Right. And like, I go, oh my God, really? But everything kind of feels very real and very visceral for me. Yes. And so I, I just kept playing around with that um, for many, many years. And then when I was about 15, I found out I could make money off of that. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so I've always uh, been of the mind crazy. that actors are incredibly gifted in disassociation. Yeah. Yeah. It's, like it's the, kind of an integral part. Yeah. You know? Yeah that you found that in kind of awful circumstances quite early. Yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting because like, that's uh, kind of a lot of the work that I do is working with people who have some form of uh, dissociation. And mm. actually it's kind of, it's kind of made me change my stance on it a little bit because it's not so much about dissociating, which is kind of like the involuntary movement of your attention to something else. Acting feels like it's a voluntary movement of attention it's controlled right? and yeah yeah it's controlled and very precise mm -hmm. and so when we look at the scientific literature around wisdom cultivation which is the other part of where i'm bringing all of my my attention to um the way that we maneuver our attention can and does very strongly affect the way that we are motivated towards things and that comes into question like okay well what do we value Right. Mm. And then those motivations affect our emotions, our behavior, and then it cascades down into construction of identity and then how we interact in the world with that identity. And the line for me in terms of the, the mechanics of acting is precisely aligned to all of that machinery. And so that's why I think like 
I'm particularly interested in the cognitive science、mm-hmm. because it offers a, a a little bit of a naturally exp- naturalistic explanation. Sorry, for this crazy thing that as actors we do. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating too because you're talking about the mechanics of of consciously disassociating in terms of、uh, survival of trauma on、mm. one hand. Or unconsciously, rather, and then in in acting consciously, and a very finely tuned, almost a motor skill of being able、mm-hmm. to separate those integral pieces. And one way that I've heard acting described is is it's the art of being human. That it's it's an intense, integral research of. The full range of both emotional and physical, I would say, mental and spiritual aspects of yeah of being human. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Really, there in terms of like where well the 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 implicit question is then how do we learn to do that voluntarily, right? And that comes into my work. I I stopped performing. On stage a long time ago, a lot of my work now is much more as a practice researcher and as an actor trainer,、mm-hmm. and so I'm deeply invested in this process of how do we create a pedagogical framework, but also an ecology of practices that teaches us how to do that, you know. And of course, the the theatre history. Tells all. There's so many different ways to go about it. So, what's the point of convergence, right?、Mm-hmm. Where do they meet, and is there some kind of common ground, which is not to say that I'm pushing for a universal acting technique. I think there's always going to be、um, a great deal of diversity across cultures and practices and styles and genres and disciplines. But fundamentally, where it sits is, as you rightly pointed out, being human. So to to engage in the process of learning to act, to engage in the process of trying to to discover oneself in an inactive form, man, that's self knowledge. That's deep work on yourself. Super fascinated at that because part of the reason why we connected is because we were working on this thing called the theater of self, you know. And I just I love that we have this、um, kind of commonality between us because then we can really get down deep into the weeds about something. How is that landing with you? Oh, absolutely, a hundred percent. And as you're talking, I'm reminded of the work of Eugenio Barba and the、uh, mm. anthropology of performance and anthropology of theater, where he's looking at this as much as possible the global similarities of how these very different pedagogies express the same things, whether it's you know the、mm. specific mudras. In Orissi, or no theater, or mime—you know, wherever、mm. it is that you have the same sort of prima materia that you're working with, but、mm. the cultural lens through which it shines expresses it in its own—it's a different color. 
as it were. Yeah. You know, these are all, it's all visible light, but you're seeing sort of different bandwidths of it. So I'm really curious about something that you said also, you know, as we kind of are looking mm -hmm. at your experience in theater, I also had kind of a disenchantment with performance per se, because it mm -hmm. felt so disjointed from everyday experience. It felt like it was suddenly on a pedestal. I, I didn't like how I felt, how I was becoming, what theater and entertainment represent in our culture. Mm -hmm. But I'm very much enamored and in the true sense of the word, enchanted by what that, what the process affords if we're going to talk a little bit in, in Vervakian terms, the mm. affordance, uh, you know, as we develop the salience landscaping, what that process, what that practice mm. affords us in terms of becoming better in, in every sense of the word, in our mm. competence, in our spirituality, in our physical practice, that 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 sense of embodied ecology of practice really it teaches us it's a continual teaching but it's also in a an awareness so i'm really mm. curious for you because you did some real rigorous study since we're kind of talking a bit about pedag pedagogy and non-pedagogy what it was about your journey that you found particularly useful in what you do now wow okay so there's a lot there what i'm yeah there's a there's a lot there and so like what i'm hearing from that question is what parts of my training made me interested in the training itself yeah yeah um so this is really fascinating to me because when we talk about salience landscaping um in this case to to mean for if people are not familiar with the term right the salience landscape means what stands out to you right so what's relevant to you what sticks out and then those things connect together to form a kind of tapestry if you will of things that stand out um well i actually kind of always had a problem with with pedagogies um particularly for acting and it was really bizarre because i started out fairly young um and then as things got much more technical, I also felt rather disillusioned by it. And I remember this in like my first day at drama school, we were all made to stand around in a, in a circle. And then, you know, we'd been running around the room for two hours and everyone was exhausted. And, you know, it's, it's psychologically a kind of state of hyper suggestibility. Right. And in that moment, uh, we were asked to kind of step into the middle circle and declare your name and declare, I am an actor. And there was this part of me that went like, well, this is really brainwashy, isn't it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's like, it felt really, really weird. So, you know, sort of that same, that same sense of like um, dissociation or disconnect arrived. And something really amazing happened in that moment because it's kind of like a crossroads. And I had a choice to capitulate to the instruction or to go into the circle and just go, I'm Ethan and I'm a person. I'm me. I just am. Or I'm not. Right. And I was amazed at like how quickly um, I chose the former option. Uh -huh. Right. 
And so there's this, and it's bizarre because like now when I think about it, I go like, there was something in the way that was done that made it so that that former choice felt like the most right option, you know, despite knowing that others were there. And so this kind of carried on throughout the pedagogy and it, it became this, it colored it in a way where it's like, well, you got to get the grade. You got to do this so that agents would pick you up. Mm-hmm. You got to do this so that the industry would X, X, Y, Y, Z, Z. You have and to follow the choreography. Was, oh yeah, absolutely. Not just in dance class, but in, in the world. Yes. Right. And it swallowed my life. Now, I think I was very lucky in a sense that um, I was a foreign student, you know, studying in drama school in London, one of the most prestigious uh, institutions whose name I shall not mention. Um, And so I was aware that I kind of wanted to go back to my home country. I wasn't going to work in that industry necessarily. And so it felt like a lot of the justifications they were levying wasn't applying. Mm. In that sense, I could take a look at the pedagogy isolated from their justifications. Does that make sense? Right. I could look at it on its own. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it got me really, really interested into uh, like Linklater voice technique for me is really fascinating. Um, I particularly love that, that pedagogy and a wonderful teacher as well, Darren Oram. Um, He, he really emphasized a lot the sensation of feeling sound in your body. Mm, and I had yeah. never, you know, never really connected with my body that intimately because of a history of trauma and abuse, right? And I found things opening up for me. I could actually feel genuine joy um, when I could feel my, my, my ribcage vibrating. So, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. How is this occurring? And it was literally changing the way that I looked at the world. Yeah. You know, in a proper sense, which keys us into kind of if i think about it it's a precursor to how i think about ritual you know it's this sense that here is a kind of technical thing that you do right it's a physical thing that you can do mm-hmm. it's a conscious effort to introduce invariance into your system you either do it or you don't so there's a part of you that maintains that and i would argue it's the same part of your mind that when you're performing and something really heated is happening on stage, that's the part of your mind that goes stage left, light, go now, right? So that part maintains the procedural, the, the, the proprioceptive, the active thing. Now, the other part is the part that turns inwards and looks at how one looks at the world. So it's the perspectival. So it's this delicate balance between what's being done and how it's affecting you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And balance is a great way of describing it because it very much is like if you have ever tried spinning a plate on a stick, it's incredibly difficult until it clicks. And then once you've got that, this can become autonomous. It's kind of like we learn to walk, right? It's that same thing. Mm. I think part of the the mechanics as a performer, as an actor on stage, you learn how to find your light. You learn how to really use your peripheral. And this is, you know, as I'm listening to my language, peripheral mm. awareness extends way beyond the visual. 
It extends mm-hmm. through all sorts of sensory perceptival means. Mm. But that ability to almost run these things on autopilot, right? I know how to find a, a spot on stage. I know how, and, and you also do that with, with the audience as well. How to yeah. wait for laughter to subside, how to wait for, you know, how to feel and manipulate attention. I even, I heard uh, Anne Bogart uh, talking in Edinburgh mm. once. She was giving a talk about about her company and some of her processes. And she said, I have a performer who can manipulate time. Mm-hmm. And the whole room just kind of went, what? And, mm-hmm. But I knew exactly what she was talking about because it's that sense. Uh, to me, it's how to stay in the moment, how to stay present with yourself, with the character, whatever it is that you're portraying, but as well as the, the presence the sense of what is being afforded to you by mm. all these other people in the room who, whether they know it or not, are also playing a role. Mm-hmm. Right? And, mm-hmm. and so I'm really, I hope we come back to this because I think there's something very critical here in what it is that Tiamat is doing, what theater of self is trying to do about how to bring those sort of psychotechnologies to bear on the everyday life and the everyday person. Mm-hmm. So, so back you, to you. Want, you, right. you want to come back to it? I'm not letting it go. I'm oh, sorry. good. Okay, I'm, we'll not, I'm not leaving it. <laughs> We're staying there because because you brought some really really great points. I love this. Um, I love this uh, idea that Anne talks about uh, an actor that can manipulate time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in a lot of the TMAP practice, something that I hear constantly come up is this sensation of time dilation. So I love to do this, right? We always do um, an exercise which uh, is foundational to the method. We call it the playground. Um, and it's kind of based off of, uh, it's a, well, it's an augmentation of an exercise that's in um, Stephen Wang's book, An Acrobat of the Heart. Ooh. And so um, it's kind of trying to key into your stream of consciousness, but to enact it, right? And then you can, I tend to use that as a diagnostic tool to try and work out kinks and to see what patterns exist. Uh, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm always kind of like on the outs watching the thing as it unfolds and then I'll manage the space. So usually when we finish one of these exercises, I'd ask the actors, how long do you think that went for? And no one will ever give me the same answer. Someone will go, you know, 15 minutes, someone goes like, half an hour someone goes and like it felt like an hour someone goes like it felt like i just started five minutes you know um and it always be different from our chronos our qualitative yeah. time right so their their phenomenological experience of time shifts and this comes back to that thing that we talked about with balance here which is that once you once you introduce invariance in the form of a ritual okay i know what i'm doing here and i know what I am intentionally putting forward as a form mm-hmm. and I'm going to keep an eye on the perspectival, how it's changing what stands out to me, how it's affecting me inside the body, affecting my behavior, affecting the way I perceive the world. Now I can start to draw causal patterns between the form and how it's affecting me. Yes. And once that causal pattern starts to emerge, like you said, it's like spinning, it's like spinning a, a plate on a stick, right? You start to become very tuned in to the tiny little shifts 
yes. that are happening inside your hand yes. those things become more salient they stand out more you know now what's really amazing about that is that we would normally if we weren't in this balance we wouldn't know what the hell is happening there but once that balance is struck you can pay attention to that thing and go okay oh if i shift it just like a little bit to the left ah oh, i've got it right and sure I, i don't think anyone else would really care but it's very significant yes. to this person who's in that state man that thing is going to start triggering dopamine loops it's going to start triggering adrenaline it's going to start triggering acetylcholine in your brain mm-hmm. you know and all of those things within our autonomic nervous system start to adjust our experience of time it's a meditation fundamentally yes, yes. you know and so i i really didn't want to run away from this because the the you you talked about it being you know as actors on stage and i would push back a little bit and say that it's also actors on set it's also actors at work it's also actors at home it's actors, it's actors online walking down the street also actors yeah. in an argument yes yeah and in fact it's just people yeah because we know the flow state is is a universal experience the, the literature on that's very clear right so when we're talking about let's say okay actors on set right how do they need to adjust their salience landscaping i need to remove the director of photography who has like a 35 mm lens this close to my face yeah. <laughs> for like 2 minutes i need to find that thing irrelevant as compared to the person that i'm talking to right now yes and so all these little shifts that are happening in your face that are happening in like just the background with you that person who's walking past you know whatever it is that the scene demands i need to tune my salience landscaping to all of these things so that they affect me more than the dop racking focus next to me yeah you know that's a bloody skill <laughs> had the lovely gift of an experience uh in teaching my or teaching watching my daughter learn mm. to ride a bike recently now she's almost 12 and she's ignored that for since we started when she was you know 3 she mm. can't stand being taught and she can't stand not being able to be perfect the first time she does something but she mm. was able to now get on the bike experience failure experience failure over and over again until you know just like you're describing the the differences in the sensation of her position on the bicycle began to make sense to her in a way that mm. suddenly this narrow range of balance changed in perspective and scale so that oh it's now seems huge to me and this is the window this is what my affordance right this is where i live yeah. <laughs> in order to do this and to see the flow state just blossom in that yeah. moment was amazing and also because she's older than most kids are when they learn how to ride a bike 
Right. She was able to articulate that and be present with herself and the the surroundings, her world, and yeah. me. And it was a real insight into exactly what you're talking about, right? In the same way that when we explore a crevice or something on our with our tongue on our teeth, it seems uh -huh. massive, right? The sort of the homunculus yeah, yeah. of of that experience. But when you like, oh, what is this on my teeth? And you look and it you can't see it because it's so 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 small. But in your yeah. mind, in your experience of it, it is massive. It's I huge. really I feel like that's exactly what you're describing is, you know, once you're able to feel the muscle, feel the the sensitivity of of that salience landscaping mm. of all of that awareness mechanism. You're mm. able to block out the, you know, DOP. You're able to block out the lights and and, the mm. set. and to really, I feel like coaching is very much like that as well. Yes. Like coaching reminds yes. me of, of directing. So that, that very much lands with me in that. Okay. So you're giving me two wonderful gifts here. Um, and I want to, I want to definitely, I will come back to the coaching thing <laughs> later on because yeah. that's a, that's a shared endeavor that we have, but like, I cannot let go of how much, um, this anecdote about your daughter has my attention. I'm, I'm kind of curious around when you said that she managed to articulate that process. She managed to articulate her, her placement of attention. It sounds like, mm -hmm. can you tell me, do you mind like revealing a little bit about what she what she said how did she like the minutiae of that not at all so this is a child who is exceptionally creatively focused she's a writer she loves language she was Beautiful. has always been in that state and her facility with language is pretty remarkable mm. um and so <laughs> She was physically bubbling over. There was just that awareness, that sense of, I feel different. And mm. she, so both in, in her physical expression, but also as she, I, you know, I said, how does that feel? Her name's Evie. I said, how does that feel yeah. to you, Evie? And she said, it's, it's like flowing water, water. It's like giggling. It's, oh. you know, and so there was this immediate transparency portation of experience into expression so there was the feeling of it that she was being very present with you know and yeah i mean i get tears <laughs> coming yeah. to my mind just thinking about how beautiful it was and and also the gift of that for her that she someone who is normally and i think about adults i think about trauma when i when i talk about this who are closed down to potentialities of experience because of preconceived notions of either how things are supposed to be or how they are supposed to port, comport themselves in the world, right? Yeah. yeah. But that, it's almost like putting a lens cap on things yeah. or, or blinders, right? This is all I'm allowed myself. This is, there's a great line yeah. in Stoppard's play um rosencrantz and gildenstern are dead he says people know what to audiences know what to expect and that's all they're prepared to believe in and Oish. oftentimes i feel i feel mm. like that about people as well like we know what to expect out of life 
That's what we've been mm. taught. That's what our trauma has has conditioned us to do. It's what our experiences have conditioned us to do. It's what our teachers have conditioned. And we have, and I think a big part of what I witnessed in Evie mm. and what I often see in, in theater students, either mine or what I have, have, have experienced myself, mm -hmm. is that moment when not only are the blinders coming off, but I can take them off. And I can, I'm able to adjust the focus and yeah. that sense, that's what that's flow in a lot of ways, but there's something deeper to that. Like flow to me is flow is a, a deep connection to virtuosic or almost virtuosic, a, a high degree of facility with something that allows you to express whatever it is you're trying to express in the moment. But yeah. there's there's something particularly, and I, we touched on this when we were talking a little bit before we started recording, that's distinct about the theatrical experiment mm. that goes beyond mm. flow to me. Mm -hmm. Because it's it affords an awareness that flow, flow ebbs and flows. I mean, that's sort of self-defining, yeah. but it, it comes to a conclusion. Like we don't have the ability to keep going with that, but something about what is gained in, in acting training and performance training and, and that sort of theatrical mindset, it's almost like it, it doubles its half-life or it, it extends its we, yeah it's because you are, you know that you are in the experiment constantly and that every moment yeah. is a chance to learn and that you're constantly gaining information right like if i'm yes. walking down the, if i'm walking down the street behind someone and i'm fascinated by their walk and i try it on for a little while right yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. now I'm somebody, I'm feeling, I'm able to afford a, a perspectival knowing and a salience landscaping that was not available to me before simply because I mimicked that, that suit that I put yes. that, that those qualities on myself, even though that person may be huge or small or thin or mm. thick or whatever the case may be. I am now jumping into a completely new frame of reference. Way of being. Yes. Yeah. So frame that, of reference there's something way of being, very yeah. different about that sense of flow. So I've kind of gone yes. a little way from, from Evie's experience, but I think that they're similar in that way. Yeah. So like, I, I really, I really appreciate you bringing this up because when we're talking about having a frame of reference, we're talking about a way of being. Um, we're trying to tie together flow state and I want to try and connect these dots. So um, a lot of uh, why I found that anecdote particularly emotionally like uh, provoking for me in a good way or emotionally evoking for me is that, you know, the way that Evie describes that experience is imagistic, mm -hmm. you know, and that really stuck out for me. So uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Jung and you know this and of course, coming from a depth psychology background, like we have a commonality, we have a common friend in Carl, right? Mm -hmm. And so when when I was talking to uh, John on his podcast uh, months ago, we were talking about this idea of um, a symbol being an existential relationship, 
you know, that it fundamentally changes the way that you exist in the world. And I'm, uh, I, I really, really truly want to um, credit Jung for this because when he talks about symbols, he's, I, I really don't think he's talking about it propositionally. <laughs> he can't be. Right? No, he's talking he's about talking, it archetypally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And how we come into a relationship with that symbol in the way that Evie did with the flowing of the water is not that she's, is not at the point where she's telling you about this, at the point where she's riding the bike. She's becoming water as she's riding the bike. Yes. And it's overwhelming, right? It's very giggly, like she said, right? So there is an affective dimension to this. So we can do that at will, as you rightly pointed out, by you know, taking somebody on right and saying okay well what's it like to be in your worldview first somatically right with the body and maybe if we key into the idea of this ritual balance that i was just articulating earlier then that somatic experience is going to affect the way i perceive the world and the way i be in the world and that's the psychophysical work uh, obviously coming from a grotovskian tradition i i have to lean into that yes. a little bit more right is that the body does affect the way that we perceive the world now the way we perceive the world then affects our motivations what does it make me want to do what is what how does it make things stand out to me that is different from the way that it was 20 seconds ago before i started walking like this person I want to add on I think um, something that I'm working on at the moment but is also quite quite interesting to key back into the first thing that we were just talking about and this question of reassociation at will is that when you're in a theatrical setting right there's an audience there someone's watching it's very different from being on the street and and mimicking someone's walk there is an observer present and so that flow state might still occur, but guess what? There's a part of the mind that sits in the observer's position mm -hmm. and watches the flow state happening, right? So then something here becomes, in, becomes I think, particularly uh, instrumental in the sense of being able to follow the light cue, right? Is that now that part of the mind can go, well, how can I keep this flow state going on and so i was just thinking that it's like the that observer pushes the the gas pedal yeah steers yeah. the steers the flow absolutely and this is something that we talk about in tiamat usually in the first session um i'll i'll ask people this question of like was there anything you wanted to do that you didn't do mm. you know and so you know, they'll usually people will have something that they go oh you know i wish that i can had can i ask a clarifying question about that yeah sure it, do something that you didn't didn't get a chance to do or wanted to do. Do you mean that in terms of in the framework of an exercise or in a workshop or what's the the sense oh. of right uh, in the exercise? So in, in the, the context of an improvisation yeah. or in a scene or something like that, right? So yeah. I'll ask them this question, and then um, you know they'll usually bring up something like you know oh, you know I wish I, I actually wanted to pick up the cup and then like I kind of 
didn't. And then you see them fritz out for a little bit. I'm like, <laughs> okay. So what did you do instead? Um, and sometimes it's, ah, I don't know. You know, and sometimes it's, oh, I just, uh, I, I think I think I sat down or, or, or something like that. You know, it's very difficult to recall. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's fascinating, eh? That like, they can remember the moment of resistance and yes. not the, the, the capitulation to something else afterwards. And um, we call that, we call that moment, right? I'll, I'll, I'll then ask them, well, how did it feel to do, to do that thing that you, the alternate thing? instead of the thing you want to do. And they go, I don't know, it just felt like, all right. I'll go, well, great. Well, that's the bullshit light. You know, it's that, it's that light that goes off when you go like, you know, if you're, if you're on stage and you're supposed to do something, you kind of don't really believe it, but you got to do it. Yeah. Because otherwise the stage manager will yell at you later <laughs> during yeah. intermission. Ethan, right. you were late. <laughs> you didn't, you didn't hit that line. You didn't pick up the pencil. Ah, I didn't want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what um yeah so it, you know it's in, it's in that moment that it's like wow they go oh oh shit that 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 bullshit like exists you know and I'll tell them like yeah well you're in control of that you know and that's where I kind of push people towards agency and I'm trying to tie into that thing that we want to to come back to with coaching yeah it's like what is the role of a coach right this idea that you know at the peak of it um, at least for me, I'm more interested in engaging somebody's creative and cognitive agency mm. in a room when they are working with me. You know, and it's how I direct. Uh, it's how I train actors as well. You know, it's also how I coach people. Is this question of like, if you really wanted to do that thing, okay, and you didn't do it, why not? And don't get me wrong there are a lot of reasons why you should or shouldn't do something, right? Like if you want to go and kill somebody, for example, right? I'm not trying to say, you know, go and do whatever you want. It's take a deeper look at why you did or didn't do that thing. Yes. You know, and it's often those points where, like uh, in this example that I just gave, where we kind of fritz out and we don't know why we didn't do that thing. Maybe it's worth questioning that. Maybe it's worth figuring out, okay, I didn't, I chose not to do that actually. I might not know why I chose not to do that, but I can figure it out. It's subliminal at that point. Yes. As opposed to unconsciously not doing the thing you wanted to do. You see, it's a very, very like subtle kind of balance. And so this comes to that question of like, as a, as a coach, is that something that you notice that you employ also in the way that you work with people or is that purely an idiosyncratic thing that I'm doing? <laughs> I will tell you for myself, that is, that is the crux of the coaching experience for me is to be as present with myself as possible mm. at every moment so that I'm charting not just what's happening for my client, but what's happening for me. Because Mm -hmm. in the same way, you know, we're talking about this very fine membrane between the actor's observer mind, Mm. writing, helping to manipulate, control uh, the the corpus, the, the vehicle. Yeah, yeah. 
there's there's also moments when the observer sort of let lets go of the reins right mm. you know how to spin the plate well enough that you don't have to look at it and think about it so that can happen mm. now i'm going to let go of the reins so that you can actually ex you can become you can enter into the brief madness the illusion mm. Mm. of this thing i have just enough of a thread attached that when i get to the end of the soliloquy or when i get to the end of this movement phrase mm. i can tug on that and that brings me back to just enough of an awareness of the observer to do what's needed to stay in the form yes yes that's the procedural maintenance of ritual yeah yes yeah yes so you know if we're gonna if we're gonna look in a ritual context that's the fact that everybody in an actual ritual there is no observe there's no uh, audience in a ritual everyone is a participant whether they have an active role in you know i'm thinking particularly of like a, a haitian voodoo um, ceremony where everyone knows the drum beats mm -hmm. everyone knows the the different gods the loa that are present in their in the pantheon mm -hmm. all of the props for each of the gods are available but they mm -hmm. don't know who's going to show up but when you see someone mm -hmm. who starts to who's observer lets go of of the reins and one of these archetypes mm -hmm. becomes formed into an archetypal image of let's say uh papagede or baron samdi or yeah. ezuli everybody says oh shit they're here yeah 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 let's go get the props and they you know so Baron Samdi, here's your here's your hat, here's your glasses, mm -hmm. here's your cigarette, here's your cane. The drums change to specifically the drums that this loa, this god, likes. Mm -hmm. Everybody mm -hmm. knows that. So there is no audience. Although we're all watching, we mm -hmm. are this is it's very much it echoes throughout a bunch of different um spiritual traditions. But in this one, everyone is a participant. There is no interlocutor except as is chosen by the, the moment. Okay. Okay. So, I'm, you, you, so you, I'm, I've kind of taken us into a different place here. But you said ritual, so we're going there. Well, oh, <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, that feels to be a true line that's, that's running around this conversation. So there are, I think, this, this idea of... Um, you know, everybody knows who is, who is what, when they show up. And yeah. at the same time, there's also this kind of like looseness around, we don't know who's going to show up, but we know when they do. Right. And we have our stuff ready. Um, and what comes up for me is uh, Hamlet, the readiness is all, you know, um, there is a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it not mm. be now yet, it will come. Da, da, da. Right. So yeah. it's, I, I find, I find that a really wonderful poetic, um, exemplification of this kind of metastability that 
um, and this is dynamic systems theory coming in that there's a certain degree of consistency in the way that a stand-up comedian has a has a certain repertoire of jokes, but you're not going to be able to predict if somebody's going to heckle you or how hard they're going to laugh or how long, but you know how to can you know how you can deal with that. Right. Yeah. So this dynamic interplay between this kind of order and chaos is present. Now I do on the back of that have a little bit of pushback because I would argue that the act of listening itself, the audience itself is active. It's an active listening. Absolutely. And that it should be, I think it should be, I'm not sure that I'm not sure about our hit rate at this point um, yeah. when it comes to live performance. You know, especially after COVID, but and that would take us to a different discussion, which is not a thread I want to follow. I think that what can potentially um, occur is that there is a construction, a spontaneous construction of an imagined order in the room. And that's kind of what we're trying to do in the theater. Is that the it's willing this, suspension of disbelief? Um, is that the convention of we enter into this space understanding the conventions of the mm, space, mm. but we're also open to the possibility of something magical happening. And everyone has that hope, I think. I hope this is good. <laughs> is that what you mean? I think it's, see, that's the thing, right? I feel like it's beyond just conventions. You know, I, I think that conventions help to ground what is happening, but there's also an awareness of the context in which it sits. So I'm, I've been playing around with this idea that, um, okay, so let's take, uh, let's take, uh, uh, this, this example of the ritual that you've offered from, um, Maya Darren's work in the divine horseman. Okay. Mm -hmm. So within this context, we have something called the text and that text is whether implicit or explicit manifested in the drum beats um they follow a certain they, they are they are how do i say this they stand out to us in a certain way they're prototypical right so we we understand that we also know uh, at least everybody in that community understands the text that forms the archetype of whichever god decides to emerge Right, whatever metaphysical entity it decides to emerge. The performers, right, roughly know the moves. They include backflips, they include this kind of thing. The costumers know that as well. So that's just the text, it's the thing, the yeah. object. Right. And then comes the subtext, which is the subjective element, the individual interpretation. The I believe you were you were saying either yeah, in, in the previous conversation, that any one person can be ridden by the God. Yes. Right. So there is a subjective individual aspect to this, but it's not so deviant that it destroys the text. It sits right. under it. Right. Now, that's the second point in the triangle. The third point in the triangle is the context in which it sits. All of the things that, that inform this particular community and how we're gathered there, whether it's um, in the spring or whether it's just before rainy season yeah. or whether, you know, um, uh, somebody is coming to attack us, you know, in the modern 
uh, era will be something like, you know, what's the political climate, right? What's the hot topic issue, so-called? And so when you have these three points, something really interesting happens. We're, I will argue that in the theater, we're trying to draw the line between the subtext and the context, this thing that I call the transtextual line. It's something that permeates all three levels. It's beyond the object. It's beyond the subject's interpretation and it's beyond the larger context in which it sits. It's something that speaks through time. That's mythical. Myth is transtextual. Yes. So I'll give this example. Um, Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 is a very good example of a transtextual act. And I don't, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not Christian, uh, neither am I pushing a particular religious agenda. I'm just looking at it in terms of dramatic structure. So there is, um, so in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 18 is what, this is after um, uh, Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit and then they are, they are being judged by God. So God judges the serpent, right? And then it's, it literally writes, and God said to the serpent, crawl on your belly, da 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 right? And then God says to Eve, and then God says to Adam, and then in verse 22, it goes, and then God said, doesn't specify who, and then God said, man has now become like us. Hmm. Talk about a fourth wall break. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I've checked the I've checked the translations as well. It's actually like consistent across the board. Wow. Yeah. And does is do all of the translations also have God refer to themselves in the in the third person, plural? Yeah. God says, and man has now become like us. So the question, of course, from from the dramatic standpoint, from a reader standpoint, is who is this us? Yeah. Right. And that's that's God looking through the pages of the text, is looking through the good book. And this is something that is prevalent in a lot of mythical stories. So the Mahabharata does this as well, right? It begins, uh, it's actually a play within a play. So the first chapter is uh, the snake sacrifice. And that's where, you know, they celebrate the story of the Mahabharata within that. Um, and so there's this, there's something really interesting here when we think about like, okay, well, that seems fairly familiar. Yeah, because Ryan Reynolds does it in Deadpool all yes, the time. All the time. Right. We know this, we know right. this trope. And yes. we love it because Ex now we're in on the act. Yeah, is this conspiracy thing? Yes. Is this conspiracy thing that's pulling something in? And so what's that saying to the audience? It's saying you're an active listener and we know you're there. And we know that if I make a joke about the X-Men, it's an intertextual joke, right? It's talking between objects. Yes. That you're going to understand it. And I trust that you will. It's, it's a throwback to the call and response of the griot telling a story. Yeah. A crick, a crack, or I go, ame, right? To have the make sure yeah, yeah. that everyone's listening. You with me? You with me? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we can go. Yeah. Yeah, and that thing is also present in the silence of uh, stand-up comedians where they like, where they'll listen, they'll let the joke hold, and then they'll even laugh at it themselves. Yes. <laughs> you know, Andrew Schultz I, I think does it's this really also well. very present in the manipulation of time that Anne Bogart was talking about, right? It's that sense of holding space in a mm. way that 
calls forth a response in holding space. Yes. Active, yes. It's an active listening and a inquest, a request, a, a an invitation. Yes. Even if that response is silence. Almost and so, more so. Yeah. And so this is where I, I kind of um, uh, throw in this idea, uh, which also I'm I'm kind of working on in terms of the audience um, actor relationship or audience performer relationship is this idea of Gnostic spectatorship. Ooh, so that's yeah. <laughs> I love that. It's just it's just five syllables strung together. Um, yeah, this this sense of Gnostic spectatorship is that okay? Well, once you have the active listening component, right, and you know that they are with you, and you've pulled them in with this sense of conspiracy, right? We're trying to get at something together. Now we have a relationship. What are we going to explore within that? And it's the, the Gnostic idea here, meaning that we're leveraging the use of these psychotechnologies to learn more about how we're connected into the world through an altered state of, usually powered by an altered state of consciousness. Yeah. Now, in this case, the altered state of consciousness is the buying into, or as you called it, the suspension of disbelief, right? We're called into some fictional, um, uh, how do I say this, fictional frame. Yeah. I don't want to say fictional context because it will, it will mess up the thing, but it's, it's a fictional trans text right, idea. Once we have that, okay, so the trans textual affords the active listening, the conspiracy, and then from that conspiracy, we are engaged in an altered state of consciousness from which we can learn more about our world, giving birth to narcissism. And so when I think about this question around what is the function of theater, it feels to me, and I'll make this as a proposal to you. I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. I propose that the function of theater is this ontological representation, right? So we are, we are representing through an action and time a dialectical relationship between whatever this imagined order is you know, whether it's Hamlet or it's a or it's a ritual or it's a postmodern kind of dance piece whatsoever, and the world in which we sit, the the quote unquote real world. Okay. It's a collective dialectic. We're trying to get trying to pull apart these two things so that we can take a look at each of them in relation to each other, with each other. So even if I'm Proctor and you're seated in the front row, right? I'm trying to ask you, hey, what do you think about what I'm doing? Because there's a part of my brain, half of it, that's sitting right where you are. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in your perspective. Can you share that with me? And I'm really encouraged by um, artists starting to do this more which is to have these um, um, post-show talks. I, I do them ritualistically uh, with my company every time we do a show to say, okay, to hell with the, you know, five chairs, let's sit down and ask the director what the vision is. That's, that's not really moving towards Gnosticism. Instead, we're trying to transcend the end of the play, carry that conspiracy into the post-show, right? and go, let's stay in this state, guys. Let's yeah. stay in this relationship. And please tell me about how we can unlock these, this 
this relationship, this dialectical relationship between the fictional context, the fictional world that we've created and the real world, and then meet in the dialogos, meet in the logos, Mm-hmm. and hopefully come towards some some higher order orientation. This is the end of the first half of our conversation and things continue and deepen in the second half. So please continue listening to part two with Ethan Kobayashi here on the Quotidian podcast. Thanks for being here.